Good morning. Before I start preaching, I want to mention a couple of other preachers in the services to come. Uh, we have established a tradition this year of having a question and answer uh, session on the second Sunday night of each month, if the schedule permits, and we're going to continue that. Uh, Hiram and I are going to alternate that, and so Hiram is going to deal with it. It is encouraging and impressive the number of questions that you all are asking. And, and so uh, for the second month in a row, we have many more questions than we can handle in one service. And so uh, he will deal with some of those. Keep, uh, we got more questions even after uh, the emails came in. So keep sending those in, and we'll deal with those month by month. It lets us know what's on your mind, uh, what concerns you, and, and what you're dealing with. And so Hiram will, will preach that this evening. Next Sunday begins our gospel meeting. This is the day. Uh, David Decker is coming and he is bringing sermons that are evangelistic in nature. So please be thinking about those co-workers, those friends, those folks that you've been working on and that you would like to encourage to come and to hear the gospel. David has so many years of experience and is uh, one of the best uh, speakers that I know. And so we're thankful that we have the opportunity to have him here. So be thinking uh, about that and be praying for it. And then on the last Sunday of the month, uh, we're going to have the first opportunity to hear David Chang preach to us uh, since he has come on full time and we're looking forward to hearing what he has to say. God's blessed us by having David to come our way. You know, I'm going to preach on a subject this morning that I realize is one of those that is like marriage. Anytime somebody gets up to preach it, they are suspect because they can't do what it is that they're telling others to do perfectly. I hope it's not like, and I don't know that I'm going to have to face that given the circumstances. It was when several years ago I got up to preach on child rearing. And uh, Kathy had the three little boys with her, and they were probably, I guess, five, three, and one. And uh, Carl needed to go out of the auditorium. Sometimes little children have to go out of the auditorium, and it's okay. And Kathy had one of those moments where he just would not behave in the assemblies. Moms, it's okay. You can take them out when that happens. Address the issue and bring them back in. So she took Carl out, expecting that the other little ducklings would go right along with her, but they did not. They stayed in the assembly, and having no adult supervision anywhere in sight, they began to cut up. I have not had to do this very often in my preaching, but if it gets to that point, I have to stop and address it. And so it was my own two children, and I had to stop. And I said, thinking that just calling attention to them would be enough, I said, isn't that right, boys? Every head in the auditorium turned and looked in their direction. They didn't turn red. They didn't feel shame. They looked around and saw that they were the center of everybody's attention. And so they waved and smiled at everybody. I pretty much had to offer the invitation right there. The sermon was over. It's tough to be raising our children, especially in the world today. You know, there was a poet that said, walk a little slower, Daddy. And in that poem, he talks about how difficult it is to look at, at an example, at a role model. And in that poem, he talks about uh, the steps that are taken. And when those steps are taken, we look to them. He says, sometimes your steps are fast. Sometimes they're hard to see. Walk a little slower, Dad, for you are leading me. And someday I'll be grown up and I'll have a child of my own. 
And I'll make sure that when I do, that they are, will not go roam. And so, Dad, walk a little slower, because I'm following you. I think about that, and I think about the fact that God blessed me on November the 13th, 1993, to be a dad, when Gary was born. And God and Kathy gave me two more sons after that. And I remember that moment when I looked down into the face of that newborn and I realized that I had a part in bringing something eternal into the world. And when I looked down into the face of that little child, I realized that I was looking into the face of someone that was going to live as long as God lives. You know, in his writing on parenthood, the psalmist said that children are a blessing of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Uh, Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. I look at that psalm and I see in that part of the psalm that it is focusing on parenthood and how important that is. And we see that, uh, that children are a bestowal. The, the psalmist says that children are of the Lord. And because of that, then we are stewards of that. God has made us managers of our children's lives. We influence them. But we also see that children are a bounty. They are called a gift. They're called a reward. And so God has blessed our lives so much. And they're a benefit to us because the psalmist says that they are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And they're intended to be a blessing. Because the psalmist says as much, he says, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. When we train them up in the way that they should go, then they can be a blessing to our lives long after they leave our homes. But they're also a source of boldness. There's a confidence that can be had even in the face of the enemy. But the ironic thing to me is that that psalm is written by Solomon. And Solomon is a son of David. When I began to examine the life of David, and there's so much good to be said about him, and I appreciate what was said about him in the prayer and the mentality and the attitude that we are to have like David. And there are so many places in David's life where we can look and emulate. And we see that he was prolific as a father. He had 22 children. One daughter is named. There are 21 sons that are listed. 19 of them are called by name. And many of the names that David gives his sons are names that give praise and glory and honor to God. But their lives sometimes were a different matter. But nobody symbolized this strain, this difficulty, more than Absalom. Of all the relationships that were broken in David's life, I believe that the relationship with Absalom was the one most broken. His name, Absalom's name, means the father of peace. But you look into his life, and you'll see that he was a source of trouble and division. Not only in his own home, but also in the nation. And we come to look and understand why that is, that David was a great reason why that there was dysfunction, there was failure in the relationship and failure in Absalom's life. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, you have uh, David failing to deal properly with uh, Amnon who rapes his daughter Tamar as uh, Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. And Absalom is upset about this and David does not intervene. And Absalom is going to take matters into his own hand. We also see in the relationship that follows that there is a mixed signal being sent by David to Absalom. 
He, he doesn't show love and concern. He doesn't deal properly with the hurt and with the sin in his life. He seems to be so passive in everything that goes on. And he is apathetic. He's weak. He's passive. When it says in 2 Samuel 15 verse 1 through 6 that Absalom was stealing the hearts of Israel. And so we can look at David's guilt and his failure in his own personal life and the public legacy of it. And he was at the heart of the struggle that takes place between himself and Absalom. Of course, Absalom shoulders some of the blame himself. You think about the fact that he takes matters into his own hands. He takes vengeance in a place that belongs only to God in Second Samuel chapter 13. He has no problem usurping the throne of his father and taking the place of leadership that God had designated for someone else in 2 Samuel chapter 15. He had no problem with the thought of his dad being killed and him sitting in his father's place, 2 Samuel chapter 17. The sad ending of this story that was destined for failure on Absalom's part is told for us in 2 Samuel chapter 18. Absalom has abandoned the Lord... He has abandoned the will of God. And we see what happens in the waning moments in 2 Samuel chapter 18. When you look at David's response, as the battle is raging, and as we already know as the reader that things are already too late for Absalom, you see the reaction on David's part. That first of all, you look and you see that he was filled with anxiety. In 2 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 24, you have David with the watchman over the gates of the city. And as he looks out over that, he raises his eyes and he's looking, just hoping for a glimpse of some good news. And with that anxiety, there's also this attending desperation that is shown on his part in verse 25. When he says that if there is a lone messenger that comes, it'll be good news. And so he has that lone messenger And then yet the Cushite also comes along and he's also carrying a message. It's such that the desperation of David reached its climax when he asked not once but twice, Is the young man Absalom safe? And then we see at the very end of this that he's guilt-ridden and he's grief-stricken. In verse 33, when the news has been delivered to him, the Bible says that the king was much moved and he went to his chamber over the gate. And as he went, thus he cried, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God that I had died for you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Such a sad end to a relationship that was rocky for a long time. A couple of years ago, David Kinneman and Mark Matlock, in fact two years ago, wrote the book Faith for Exiles. And in the midst of that, they draw a conclusion that really gets our attention. They say that two-thirds of all 18 to 29-year-olds are going to leave the church at some time during that period. And as they examine that, they say that one of the findings that's consistent in their studies across religious boundaries is that young non-Christians are avoiding Christianity. And young Christians are abandoning the church. And I realize that that is not a study of the Lord's church. And I don't know of a quantitative study that's been done among the people of God to see how we're doing. But how often are we facing anxiety and desperation and grief and guilt as we think about our children leaving home? Anecdotally, we can talk about those who when they leave the home, they leave the church. How often in the privacy of our homes have we heard the statement, is the young man or the young woman spiritually safe? 
How do we go about to examine that and to see what God would have us to do in responding to that? I think one of the most important passages is one that Mac read to us so well a moment ago, and I want to focus in just on verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. I think there are three encouragements there to us that can help us in the task that God gives us to raise our children, to raise our grandchildren, to be able to walk with them to the Lord's right hand someday. We realize from passages like Proverbs 22 and verse 6 that we are to train up our children in the way that they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. And we understand in that that there's a rule, there's a bent, an inclination in the child and that we are to help them to look at their strengths, to help them through their weaknesses. And as we do so, try to get them in the way that when they're old, they will not depart from. We realize that sometimes, despite our best efforts, that's not going to work. But there's some good instruction in Ephesians 6 and verse 4 that can help us. How can we do all that we can... To make sure that our children are safe. Seems to me that Paul begins by saying to the parents, watch your own behavior. Do you see where Paul begins in the verse? He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. When you look at the word that's used in Ephesians 6 and verse 4, anger, uh, which means to boil over, and then the idea of exasperation, which is to, to push so hard. Sometimes we think of tough love as is pushing them. Sometimes we can push too hard and too far and we can be too unreasonable. Paul begins his focus on child rearing saying that the first principle of child rearing is for us to look at ourselves. It was Dorothy Nolte who said a long time ago that children live what they learn. And as the result of that, we can see that when children live with criticism, that they learn to condemn. When children live with hostility, they learn to fight. And when children live with uh, envy, they learn to be jealous. But when children uh, live with encouragement, they learn praise. When our children live with honesty, they learn trustworthiness. And when our children learn uh, tolerance, they learn love. And so really what it is that we model and lead out with, our children will embrace. The Apostle Paul is encouraging us to see this idea that the admonition, do as I say, not as I do, is one of the emptiest ones that there is. The Apostle Paul is going to say that we're to bring up our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. How do we do that if we don't have self-discipline and if we're not a student ourselves? We can't teach what we don't know and we can't lead where we do not go. And so he says, parent, look at yourself. You know, when it comes to the the outcome that we want with our children, God is going to hold parents most responsible for that outcome. We begin to think about the, the strength that will be in the end result of our children and their upbringing. What an encouragement there is for us as we look at our children. Their faithfulness is directly proportionate in what they see in us. Now, I think there's some low-hanging fruit in this. That we make sure that what we say about the church and how our attitude is toward the members of the church is such that they can repeat publicly what they hear us say privately. And so what they hear us say in our family discussions about the elders and the preachers and the members is so vital. 
But they're also listening to the private conversations that we have with our friends. And they're also, more often than we think, looking at our social media posts. And they're going to get some idea about how we feel about the bride of Christ. And it's going to shape their own behaviors. And then there's our level of involvement in what's going on in the work of the Lord. You know, we have great opportunities through special events like lectureships and seminars or like our gospel meeting next week as we lead out and showing them that of all that's going on in my life, this is important to us and so we're going to do this. And then there's the youth activities and youth events and those that go on throughout the year and those that are, are, are periodically on the calendar. As we encourage them to be involved and we show our involvement, it is painting a picture for them of what they ought to do. And then there's our own attitude toward worship and Bible class. As we reflect how important it is to us, it's going to seem important to them as well. When I was at Bear Valley, our youth minister, Brett Petrillo, did a study over about a 15 to 20 year period about those young people who left our homes, what percentage of them stayed faithful to the Lord. And what they found was that an overwhelming majority of our young people whose dads were elders and deacons and preachers or teachers in the school stayed faithful. And the rest that remained faithful had parents who were active and involved in the work of the Lord. David Spruill, one of the preachers for the Palm Beach Lakes Congregation in West Palm Beach, Florida, also did a study of their congregation congregation perhaps a little bit larger than ours. And over that 30-year period, they found that there was an 80% faithfulness rate among those children who had two parents who were faithful in the work and in the assemblies of the Lord's church and whose children were encouraged to be faithful. You know, I read about a a woman who was involved, whose son was involved in a, a, a theft of a car 14-year-old boy in Pennsylvania. And uh, what happened was the little boy got into the unlocked Jeep Cherokee of a woman, rifled through her purse, found the keys and stole the vehicle. And the boyfriend of that woman joined the police in chasing after that 14-year-old boy. And in the, the, the pursuit, the vehicle flipped over and the boy wound up in a coma. The woman was interviewed in the local media and she blamed the woman, she blamed the boyfriend and she blamed the police and she deflected any kind of responsibility that her son had and she took no responsibility herself. Sometimes it is the case that we can try to look for a scapegoat. We might blame the church, we might blame others for a lack of faithfulness but on the front line, God has parents. It seems to me that where Paul begins is by telling the parents, watch your own behavior. I may have told you that when I became a father that night in Meridian, Mississippi, my dad brought me a plaque. It's a plaque that I have kept in my office since that time. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at it over the last quarter plus century. And if I ever get a grandson, I'm going to give that plaque to one of my sons to, to also keep and to remember. And the sentiment is, a careful man I want to be, a little fellow follows me. I do not dare to go astray for fear he'll go the self-same way. I cannot once escape his eyes. Whatever he sees in me, he tries. The bad in me, he cannot see. That little chap who follows me, I must remember as I go through summer sun and winter snow, I'm building for the years to be in that little chap who follows me. You know, as I look at Paul's admonition, as the children that are in my home, I realize 
that I must watch my own behavior. Let me tell you something. As they have grown up, I realize I must still continue to watch my own behavior. Because as they go through different stages as adults and they reach back out, they want to know, they want to see how you handle adulthood. And as you are blessed with grandchildren, that same opportunity comes. And they're going to look at your example. But then number two, as we look at what David, or rather what Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 6 in verse 4, and we see how we can help to keep our young people safe. The second thing that he says in that passage is that we need to build a relationship with our children. We need to build a relationship with our children. When you look at what Paul says here, he says that you are to bring them up. What he's talking about is an investment. We invest in the things that matter to us. And in making such an investment, we realize that the amount of investment that we put in directly uh, predicts the outcome that happens. We're investing our time somewhere. That 168 hours that we have in a week, we're putting our value in certain things. It is a phenomenon of the age that there is a a distraction ready-made for us. If we were to try to have warned people 20 years ago that this was going to be the case, it would have been very difficult for us to have been able to fathom the truth of this. I don't know if you remember or not that there was a time when they said, can you believe there's going to be a time when you can actually talk to somebody with your watch? That you'll actually be able to watch TV on your telephone? And a lot of us were mocking and laughing at that, thinking there's no way that it could be the case. But you know, this little thing can become such a distraction in our lives that it can replace the investment that God wants us to be making in our own homes and with our own children. You know, uh, there was a woman named Laura Stack who is uh, a time management guru, and she called social media digital quicksand. Do you know how much time that you're spending on your phone? Do you know how much time that you're spending on social media? You know, anything that we invest in at the expense of a relationship is going to be something that we will live to regret. The studies are out, and it is said that the average person in 2020 spends two hours and 24 minutes on their phone each and every day mining social media. Do you realize that over an average lifetime that that works out to be eight years and four months? The statistics are even more startling when it comes to teenagers. 2020 statistics say that the average teenager spends nine hours on social media every day. That works out to be over 20 years over a lifetime. And that's especially startling when we come to understand that the amount of time that is spent on relationships in real life with friends and loved ones is, statistically speaking, one year and three months. If we're not careful, we could spend all of our time mining the relationships of cyber world that we lose sight of the real relationships right in front of us. Now, I was doing a marriage seminar, and I was doing a session on social media, and a man came up to me afterwards, and he said this with regard to his wife. He says that she would rather invest in 500 superficial relationships each night than with me. I don't know what the full truth of that story was, but at least his perception was that he was being ignored. A real relationship for virtual relationships that weren't really meaningfully being invested in. 
How do we make sure in our relationships with our children that we are building the relationship with them that we need to be? First of all, I want you to think in terms of what it means as husband and wife, that we don't have that phone between us so that our children feel the strain and the neglect of that. But also as we spend our times with that, we can do so at the neglect of the attention that God wants us to pay with them. How can we build our relationships with our children to be present with them? What we've got to do is that we have got to teach the skill and the art of conversation. That is something that we have got to show as much as tell. The Bible makes it very clear how important the spoken word is to building the proper relationship. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21 says that it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those that believe. And Proverbs 18 and verse 21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those that use it will eat its fruits. Got to be sure that we are building an ability in our children in this virtual world where technology overshadows real life. The ability to be able to sit down and to discuss and to talk in a meaningful way that builds relationships. Sherry Turkle was an MIT professor and she wrote a book called Alone Together. Why we expect... uh, more of our technology and less of each other. And she said in her observation that I can't not, in restaurants, not watch husbands and wives not talking to each other. I can't not, on the train, not watch parents who are ignoring their children. I can't not, in parks, not see mothers who are texting while pushing their children. The art of conversation is so important to human development. And so often we have ignored that and neglected that as we mind those virtual relationships. But another thing that we've got to do is we've got to understand the power of the moment. If we're going to build a relationship with our children, we've got to understand that right now it's what's so important. Jen Hatmaker says that you'll never have this day again. Tomorrow your children will be a little bit older Value the time of today. Here's what can happen with us. So often what we'll say is that we're going to be better at conversing and investing in the face-to-face time with our children later. Or what we'll say is after we have been on our phones for long periods of time, I need to do better in this. We've got to be able in that moment to be able to understand the power of that transitory moment called right now. And how quickly it gets away from us. I guess it was Trace Atkins who says you're going to miss this. Take a good look around and see. Right now is that valuable time. But then also we need to set limits with regard to our technology. Including for ourselves. What that may mean is that we need to set a timer. We need to set a timer of maybe 15 to 60 minutes so that we can have meaningful interaction with our children. That may sound pathetic but it might be an improvement in some situations. But then also put the phone away. Don't just put the phone down. Did you know that they say that there's a psychological effect when you have your phone out? You can try that if you'd like. Go up to somebody and start having a conversation with them. They don't have to look at it. Just let them pull it out. Does it have a reaction to you? Do you respond to that in some way? And so at the dinner table, don't just put it down face down. Put it away. 
And it's sometimes if we don't, the, the addiction is so great that we feel the need to respond to it. And we feel the need to respond to it right now. You know, in this day of, the, of texting and of notifications and all of that, somehow we've conditioned ourselves to think that we've got to respond right now. But we don't. And we should never value that virtual relationship over the one that's right in front of us right now. Another thing that we need to do is we need to slow down and focus on that rather than on multitasking. That's what technology is supposed to do for us, isn't it? It's supposed to make life more efficient. Psalmist said in Psalm 46 and verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. That idea of being still is the idea of dropping. So perhaps the idea is we need to drop everything in some moments. Now, he's talking about meditation in Psalm 46 and verse 10, but isn't the principle sound when it comes to the relationships that we're trying to build with our children? To not being so concerned about trying to do so many things at once, but to slow down and to do those small things that we can take for granted and then practice gratitude. Sit down and think about all the reasons why you're grateful for your children. You know, for some of us, children may have come quickly and easily. For others of us, it may have been quite a while as we waited for those children. I realize that there are cases where those cannot have children. But for those who have children, what a blessing the psalmist says that they are from God. And we know how blessed we feel to have them in our lives. We're proud of them. We splash them all over social media and everywhere we think that anybody will care. But each day, let's make sure that we're focused on building a relationship with them. I read this story purported to be true about a little boy who had a conversation with his dad. And he said, Dad, how much money do you make an hour? Dad said, I'm not going to tell you that. The boy said, I really want to know. Can you tell me? He persisted. And finally, the dad said, well, I make $60 an hour. He goes, Dad, can I borrow $20? The dad was furious. And he said, if I knew that that the only reason why you want to know how much money I made was so you could borrow from me, that I never told you, you just can go to bed. The boy cried and he ran to his room. Dad, of course, very quickly felt remorse for what he'd done. After he cooled off, he went into the bedroom and he said, son, I I realize that if you ask me for $20, then you must have a worthwhile reason why you did. Son, why do you want that money? Little boy, eyes dried now. Showed his dad his piggy bank and he says, I've got $40. And with the $20 that you give me, that'll be $60 and I'd like to buy an hour of your time. Parents, let's not make them work that hard. Paul says, bring them up. Build a relationship that you'll be thankful for when they're grown and gone. But the last thing that he indicates to us is that if we want to have our young man and our young woman be safe, we need to train them up in the way that they should go. You know, there's so much that can help us to raise well-rounded children. Extracurricular activities, athletics, uh, academic programs that can really augment the things that they need and to help them to get ahead of their peers. A strong youth program. But the admonition to train up our children in the way they should go is not something that can be accomplished or obeyed by proxies. God lays that in our hands. The in-home spiritual education of our children falls squarely to us as parents. 
And at the end of the day, that's who God holds most responsible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And these commands which I give you shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently unto your children when you sit in your house and when you walk in the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall write them on your hands, and they shall be as signs uh, or frontlets on your eyes. And you shall write them on the post of your house and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9 is encouraging us to train up our children in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Children can learn so much so soon. It seems to me, doesn't it to you, that Moses is telling the people of old to have an organized, methodical approach to this, not haphazard? I don't know how you feel about things like personal family devotions, but we've got to have some kind of system in place. We, we do for other things. A child's mind can retain so much. I say this to my shame, but I could tell you the rosters of most NFL teams, including the offensive and defensive linemen, when I was 9 or 10 years old. You know that children can be taught a foreign language by the time they go off to kindergarten. We do so much to invest in the academics and the athletics of our children and the arts. What are we doing systematically? To help them spiritually. There's a lot of different ways to accomplish that. You know, there's some good video material that's put out by our brethren. And we can sit down and we can build their faith in the existence of God and the reliability of the Bible by going to those resources together to sit down and to spend some time investing together in that, in that training. We can sit down and we can have the devotionals with them every night, 10, 15 minutes, where we're singing together and we're praying together and we're reading God's Word together. Children's Bible story books when they're small. We're investing in everything else but the only thing that has an eternal impact is the spiritual. And so Paul says, we need to train up our children in the way they should go. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We need to build their knowledge in who God is and how God loves us and how God wants us to serve Him. We live in the age of the random terrorist attack. I don't know, we've lived through several of those yesterday with such an iconic day, an infamous day, a day in which it brought out the best and worst in people, but we realize how unsafe the world can be. We also look around and we can see that there are fractured homes, dysfunctional homes. You add to that the age-old issues that every generation has to fight. Ephesians chapter 5, 15 through 17 encourages us to have balance in our homes, to realize that we're not to walk as unwise, but as wise, that we are to redeem the times because the days are evil. To not be foolish, but to understand what the will of God is. Trust in the Lord with all of your might and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that includes the paths of our homes. I thought about this. Wouldn't David have loved to have had a second chance with Absalom? The ability to go back and to do some things differently. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But that wasn't possible for him. You know what God did for us through that is he gave us an example that we don't have to have homes that are characterized by anxiety and desperation and grief and guilt. It can be characterized by joy and confidence and peace. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. 
but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He's painting us the picture of the ideal home that we can all pursue. God gives us household terminology. The first unit of any of society is the home. When we look in the Bible, it preceded the formation of the nation and the formation of the church. But it illustrates both of those very well. When we think about the body that God has established here, 1 Timothy 3.15, He calls it the house. We look and we see that God is our Father. We see that Jesus is our older brother, Hebrews 2 and verse 12. God wants us to function as family. You know, one of the best things that you can do for your physical family is to become a part of God's family. To make the decision to become His child. To be a part of the family of God that ends with an eternal home with a heavenly Father. Have you made that decision? Have you acted on your faith that Jesus is God's Son? Are you ready to repent and be baptized to have your sins washed away? We would love to help you to do that. Whether it's publicly in response to this song, perhaps it is that you'd like to study some more and to learn more of God's will and to make sure about that decision. We would love to help you do that. If you're a child of God and you need to respond to the invitation, you need to come back home and to confess wrong in your life or ask for us to pray with you in some struggle that you're going through right now. It would be our honor to do so. Even right now, as together we stand and sing.